From the Federal Judicial Center in Washington, D.C., this is Off Paper. I'm Mark Sherman. Before we get started, I want to provide an update. A lot has happened since we recorded this episode toward the end of last year that's important to talk about. I'm talking with Shelley Easter, producer of Off Paper. Hey, Shelley. Hey, Mark. As you said, a lot has happened over the last few weeks. But what's happened recently? Officer suicides are not unheard of in our system. Over the last four years, there's been at least one officer suicide each year. Sadly, and really quite shockingly, just a couple of weeks ago on New Year's Day, a U.S. probation officer killed his wife and then himself. I mean, it should go without saying that law enforcement work, whether it be more traditional policing or probation and pretrial services, is stressful even under the best of circumstances. But the pandemic, the recent civil unrest, and the violent behavior from right-wing extremists we've been observing have added greatly to the issue, making it that much more important that officers be aware of their own mental health, check in on themselves and their colleagues, know where to get help if they need it, and develop the ability to be resilient. And when I say officer, I'm talking about everyone from the chief on down. So Mark, can you tell us a little bit about what today's episode's about? Yep. So I talk with a number of officers about these issues, getting ready for the podcast, and you'll hear from them too, but this conversation is with Melinda Torres-Felix, a supervisory U.S. probation officer who chairs the Federal Probation and Pretrial Services National Wellness Committee. We discuss issues surrounding officer wellness and the resources and programs out there to address them. But one of the biggest takeaways, I think, is that it is imperative for officers to know that asking for help for themselves or others is not a sign of weakness and will not hurt their or their colleagues' careers. Indeed, knowing how to be resilient is a competency that can be learned. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about it. Let's get going. Let's do it. Probation and pretrial services officers' jobs come with a lot of stress. From pretrial investigation and supervision to pre-sentence investigation, Officers are exposed to varying degrees of trauma as they read law enforcement reports, interview victims, and assess the criminal and social histories of those involved in sometimes unspeakable crimes. Officers often internalize clients' trauma, which in turn can lead to maladaptive coping strategies and serious physical and mental health problems, even suicide. This is Monica Menino. Supervisory U.S. Probation Officer in the Eastern District of Missouri and Vice Chair of the National Wellness Committee. Okay, Monica, are you there? I am. Good. Okay. I want to just get your observations about, you know, what's been happening in the system. Why do you think it's become such an issue recently? I think that as a whole, uh, the number of law enforcement officers as well as the number of probation and pretrial services staff that is dying by suicide is alarming. And I think that when you see those numbers, you have to correlate and wonder, is it something to do with the demands of the job? Is it something to do with the ability to take care of yourself or not to take care of yourself? Research has consistently demonstrated that human services professionals like probation and pretrial officers are impacted by the traumatic experiences of those they serve. You feel like the job has gotten harder? The amount of programming is different. The amount of responsibility for officers becomes different. I think in our district, just the mere number of pre-sentence investigation reports that are coming down has increased dramatically. I think. Uh, Caseloads are going up. 
when you're looking at what is required on each case that an officer has, that's pretty demanding. The use of evidence-based supervision practices has dramatically shifted the role of the officer from monitoring client compliance with release conditions to an active agent in the behavioral change process. To do this well, officers must have compassion and empathy for their clients, and they must also have compassion for themselves. As the officer ranks have become more diverse, other important wellness issues have arisen, especially for non-white officers, women, and those in the LGBTQ community. It didn't even dawn on me that I was doing something that would be working against my wellness or my well-being. I assumed I'd always be closeted. I speak on the entire general population of officers who are LGBTQ. Um, but for me, just being an African-American male and just being a member of the LGBTQ community, those are two separate wellness issues that can also can be, uh, can be challenging. That was U.S. Probation Officer Tiffany Vega of the Northern District of Illinois and U.S. Probation Officer Johnny Alexander of the Western District of Kentucky. In this episode of Off Paper, we explore what officers, probation and pretrial offices, and the system as a whole need to be healthy and resilient, and what well-being means. I went to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center and I got certified as a fitness coordinator and I came back and I was making everyone do sprints and sit-ups and all those things. And I quickly learned that that is not what wellness is. It's a part of it. It's part of the eight dimensions of wellness. That was Melinda Torres-Felix, chair of the U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services Wellness Committee. Wellness isn't just an officer issue. Leaders also play a critical role. According to a 2018 report from the Office on Community-Oriented Policing Services at the U.S. Department of Justice, the lack of leadership in law enforcement organizations has perpetuated a culture of silence around mental health issues contributing to fatalities, substance abuse, and heart disease. Here are Chiefs Wade Warren of the District of North Dakota and Melissa Alexander of the Middle District of North Carolina. We have to find a way to get people to understand that, that prevention is huge and that, you know, these services are just a way to see and they're probably a maintenance for us to do the job. Finding a way for it to be a little bit more okay or commonplace, like going to the chiropractor. One of the things I was most excited to see about in terms of the changes to the SF-86 was it says seeking or receiving mental health care for personal wellness may contribute favorably to decisions about a person's eligibility for employment. And I message that taking care of yourself includes taking care of your mental health um, in a way that's proactive, in a way that's going to enhance your ability to do this job is really the message to focus on. Across the system, Many districts are engaging in similar efforts, while at the national level, a robust national committee has been leading overall efforts, all with the support of the Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts Probation and Pretrial Services Office and the FJC. Stay with us. Melinda Torres-Felix is a supervisory probation officer in the Northern District of Illinois. She chairs the U.S. Probation and Pretrial Wellness Committee, and she's here to talk to us about the work of the committee and the wellness movement underway in the system. Melinda, welcome to Off Paper. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. I want to begin by exploring with you the nature of probation and pretrial work. 
You've been in the system for a number of years as both an officer and supervisor. How has officers' work changed over time? And in your view, what has been the impact on officer health and wellness? Hi, yes, I have um, been in the system for over 17 years now, and I started off as a probation officer assistant, moved to a a supervision post-conviction officer, worked as a specialist um, with very challenging caseload, and now as a supervisor. So everything has evolved from the moment that I started working for the system, and and all for the better, and and has made the work that we do so much more meaningful and impactful. When I first started as a post-conviction officer, you had 60, 70 people and, you know, your job was to see them each month and make sure people were working and and follow those guidelines back then. But evidence-based practices have been around for a while and they came into our system. And we are very fortunate to have these core correctional practices that we can implement and customize our supervision to those that we supervise. But with that, you know, comes new, new challenges. We're learning new skills and we are getting a lot closer to those that we serve and we're, we're customizing that supervision for them. But that means when something happens, um, if someone is revoked, you know, we take it more personal because we've worked with them a lot closer than we have in the past. So what do you think that means in terms of wellness and, and, and sort of managing wellness for managers and leaders, as well as for those who support the probation and pretrial mission in a district? It is our job as peers and as leaders in this agency to foster opportunities to work on their wellness. And you can see that now a lot of districts have wellness programs and they are, they're hearing, they're hearing the staff, all levels of staff, because everyone is, like you said, faced with new, new jobs. Essentially, everyone's job has changed and that's what we do, right? We evolve to be better. So we need to evolve as a system with our wellness and customize what we're doing in district to support the people who are on the line doing that meaningful, impactful work and being leaders of change. So, you know, one of the consistent themes in the literature about issues of law enforcement officer health and wellness has been uh, this culture of fear and secrecy surrounding discussions of uh, officer mental health and mental health treatment, substance use, that sort of thing. Is it true from what you have observed historically in probation and pretrial, and if you could talk about um, what's being done about it. Sure, um, absolutely. In this agency, um, if you're an officer, you have an investigation done just to get your foot in the door to work here, and then there is a reinvestigation every five years. And during that investigation in the past, um, there are questions about what kind of professional help you have gotten. And in law enforcement, you know, there's a stigma around that because people are afraid to have those conversations or to go get the help they need because they're afraid they're they're not going to be seen as fit for duty or be able to qualify with a weapon because someone's going to question their mental health because they went and got help. And I'm very proud and very happy to say that I work for a system where, where that's changing. And a big change that has come into place is the SF-86, which is that background investigation. The questions have changed. And now you only have to answer certain questions. And if you answer yes to this certain group of questions, you don't have to go further. So, you know, I've had people who have said that an investigator has come in and maybe they got grief counseling or counseling for a divorce or whatever it is. And this person who's a 
non-trained professional has come in and, and really grilled them on these questions and maybe something they've dealt with in therapy, they, they've opened up these wounds that they have put away. And on the other side, people have not wanted to go and get help because they're afraid that they're going to have to answer these questions or they've heard these horror stories of investigations and, and what others have been probed for. And so I, I'm really proud to work in an agency that has made a systematic change like this. And it's very important in our national committee and in my local committee that this word is getting out there, that people know that this has changed and that in fact, going out and seeking professional help is seen as, as healthy and part of the resiliency and the core competency that we should have in this agency. Well, I appreciate your mentioning the core competency because um, uh, you, you, when the Federal Judicial Center was working with our advisory committee on probation and pretrial education, we went through multiple drafts of competencies. What was interesting was that as we were going through sort of the final drafts of the competencies, a couple of our advisory committee members said, you know, there's nothing among these competencies that talks about officer wellness. And I remember sitting around the table with the advisory committee as we were going through these final drafts, you know, and everybody was kind of struck by that. So we kind of went back a little bit to the drawing board and developed a couple of competencies that that address issues of wellness. One of them is resilience. So we have a competency on resilience and several associated behaviors with that competency. And then we have another sort of related competency that we call workload management. Have you seen any sort of evolution among folks in looking at it in a, in a broader way? When I started the wellness committee in my district, it was a fitness committee. And I went to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center and I got certified as a fitness coordinator and I came back and I was making everyone do sprints and sit-ups and all those things. Um, and I quickly learned, and this was 11 years ago, that that is not what wellness is. It's a part of it. It's part of the eight dimensions of wellness, but there's so much more to it. We know that wellness is mind, body, and soul. And so I'm seeing that, I, I see that in my district. And I'm seeing that across the nation, that people are really digging deeper to provide staff with wellness resources that are going to help, really, really help them at whatever it is they need at whatever level. What's happening at the national level and how both national and district efforts are working together to transform the system when we come back. How are you managing your health and wellness during this pandemic? And does that question itself stress you out? I'm Jennifer Richter, host of a new podcast episode for improving mental health, increasing personal and professional productivity, and fostering happiness in yourself and those around you. In this episode, I talk with two experts about actionable steps we can all take to face our challenges head on and to achieve a better sense of balance. You can find this episode, Managing Our Health and Wellness During COVID-19 and Beyond, on the COVID-19 Educational Resources page on fjc.dcn. Or if you subscribe to Off Paper through your podcast provider, you'll find it listed as a special bonus episode. 2020 doesn't have to be a throwaway year. It can be a chance to reset, rethink, and retool our coping strategies. 
and to refocus on what matters most. Give it a listen. It might just make your day. The National Wellness Committee has become a pretty vibrant force. Could you tell us about the work of the committee? The committee started in 2007, and it started, um, it was a reaction. Um, it was very sad of uh, uh, someone at the Probation and Pretrial Services Administration died of suicide. And in response to that, a steering group was created with six members, um, and it was quickly learned that we needed a lot more than six people on this committee and there was a lot of different areas and projects that needed to get worked on. So it's been nice to have the support of the administrative office. It's been nice to partner up with um, chiefs that are doing amazing things in their districts and it's been great to partner up with the FJC. So where we are today, I, I came on in 2014 and we still have three of those original members on our committee, but there's now 11 of us and we cover all levels of staff across the nation and everyone comes with different expertise to the committee and we are making sure that everyone is able to tackle something when it comes to the eight dimensions so that when a district needs assistance, we're there and we can provide that support or lead them in the right direction to have that support. You guys are now involved in multiple other initiatives, and I just wanted to ask you to elaborate on what some of those other things are. Sure, uh, a major thing that we accomplished was creating electronic learning modules. We have six of them that you can find on the JNET, and I know the FJC does a good job of connecting uh, people to it through their website as well. Uh, we cover topics such as stress and resiliency, secondary trauma, suicide prevention and awareness, manager wellness, and fitness and nutrition. Uh, we've created a casualty assistance guide, which is a written operational framework for casualty assistance in the event of a serious injury or, or death of an agency employee, which is, of course, something we hope does not get deployed, but we had to create it in the case it was needed. Uh, we have helped out with um, critical incident stress management. Um, we've deployed SISM teams in times of, of need. Uh, we did this with the hurricanes in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. We have done this um, for districts that have called up and, and don't currently have a SISM team and have needed assistance connecting for various reasons, uh, whether it was um, a suicide that occurred in that district or just as recently um, as events that happened with the death of George Floyd. So we were able to provide them with connections to get that assistance as well. We have uh, done our first wellness conference back in 2018, which was the first of its kind for our system and something we're so proud of. Um, we tackled so many different topics and more importantly, we gave staff the opportunity to go to this conference and spend three days just focusing on themselves and their wellness and giving them tools to take back to their districts so they can hopefully implement them there. We have provided presentations before, but now because of this virtual environment, we're able to do it at a larger scale. So districts that have reached out, we've been able to provide whatever training they need, whether it's suicide prevention and awareness or just what's going on with the committee and what we can do. 
a major thing we were able to do in the past few months is launch our bonus website, which is also housed on the JNet and is a great place for districts to go to and connect with other districts. They can find the point of contact for who the wellness committee leaders are or their critical incident stress management team leads as well. They can find presentations. Um, we have a lot of talent in our system and a lot of wellness experts in our system. So they can go and find all that information there. And we keep current with everything that's going on. Um, we, we post it there. We also have our wellness wisdom newsletter that people can subscribe to and get a quarterly newsletter with some information on wellness. And we like to focus um, the bulletin on what's going on in different districts so that people can kind of get ideas of what's going on and, and hopefully you know, bring that back to their districts. This is Monica Menino, Supervisory U.S. Probation Officer in the Eastern District of Missouri and Vice Chair of the National Wellness Committee. This is one of the things I like the most. Every one of us on the committee has a different topic or category or subject that we are really passionate about. And so we are offering our proposal or our project or our specialty to other districts that we can provide training to them on various wellness topics. So that's offering them free training all about wellness and also like in a time of COVID when we're not all seeing each other very often, it can bring some cohesiveness when you're trying to do some of these trainings like that. So. That's another thing that we offer and, and another place of where we're kind of excited to go is to just build that database as to what we can offer to other districts. In December, this is another thing that's kind of big too for the committee and where we go, but in December, the committee will be trained in peer support. That peer support is going to be specific to probation and pretrial staff. It's going to really equip us with effective peer support program, which we can promote to other individuals. It's going to give us the knowledge and skills necessary to um, help districts across the country and to either develop their own critical incident stress management team or to be able to deliver some peer support if the organization needs it. So I think that's where we're going. We have some ideas to create a wellness app. We're working on that. We're working on for suicide prevention. And again, you know, this is what drives me is the suicide prevention. This is my passion. And it's really exciting to know that as a country, as an agency, as a whole, we are actually looking at finding a 24-hour, one-day-a-week hotline that will be staffed by you know, law enforcement officers of some sort that will be available for probation and pretrial services officers in the need of crisis or when they want to talk to somebody. So, you know, right now there's um, 1-800-COP-LINE, and they do that. The 1-800 number that is manned by retired law enforcement officers, they include probation and pretrial and parole officers across the country. Um, we are going to hope to tap into them and see how we can use them as a support for us so that our staff know that they're available and that it's confidential. Because anybody that you can reach out to when you're feeling suicidal, you're going to reach out to. Um, and we want to be able to provide that service to them. Perhaps the major source of training in our system is the Federal Probation and Pretrial Academy. Melinda, can you tell us about the Wellness Committee's collaboration with the Federal Probation and Pretrial Academy? 
the nice thing about being at the academy is that we weigh in on what's going on at the academy. And they do work with new officers um, to talk to them about wellness and to uh, show them the ELMs, but to have real conversations with them as well. And that's so important for people to get in the beginning of their career because a lot of companies and agencies, you know, don't, don't do that. So getting into this job, you know, it's so important. It's so meaningful, but it, like we've talked about, it can come with some stress. So knowing that up front and being prepared on ways to deal with that is so important. So we're very, very lucky to have a good working relationship with the Academy. We have, um, you know, pre-pandemic, we would have meetings over there and it was nice because we were able to speak to the different instructors there and they would float ideas on wellness with the committee and it was just a really good collaboration. So we're very fortunate and to have that ability to do that. We're going to take a short break. When we return, I'll ask Melinda Torres-Felix about the impact of COVID-19 on officer health and wellness. I'll also ask her about the increasing emphasis on diversity, inclusion, and equity in the system, and whether it makes sense to consider those issues in terms of officer wellness. You're listening to Off Paper. Hey folks, resiliency is a core competency that can be learned. The first step is knowing where to go and what to do when you or a colleague needs help. Retired law enforcement officers can provide immediate assistance through 1-800-COP-LINE, C-O-P-L-I-N-E, and someone is always available at the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Trained crisis counselors can also be reached by texting NAMI, N-A-M-I, to 741-741. The text line is a service provided by the National Alliance on Mental Illness. You'll find links to other wellness resources to include a downloadable resource quick guide on the off-paper page for this episode on fjc.dcn. Don't forget to take care of yourself and your colleagues while you're taking care of everyone else. Wellness is everyone's business. Stay healthy and stay well. So Melinda, our country and our world are really being tested by the challenges presented by coronavirus and COVID-19. So how is this affecting officers and officer well-being and how is the wellness committee addressing it very very important topic to talk about right there is a pandemic there's school closures there's the fight against racial injustice there's the climate crisis there's political uncertainty and then you bring in all the other everyday stressors that people normally have it's a lot and i don't know too many people who can say they absolutely have no stress or anxiety or aren't feeling depressed or a certain way at any certain point um, in time. So I think one thing that's really important and something I know I, I speak to those that I um, work with here in the office is that, you know, we have to meet people and we have to be open and we have to understand that everyone's in a different place right now and some people aren't themselves right now. So it's just very important that we come at it from a space like that. As the committee, we are doing everything we possibly can. We have been providing and find, finding and providing as many resources we can on wellness. And after the death of George Floyd, we also did the same thing with diversity and inclusion issues and, and anything around that. We were taking suggestions and bringing them to the administrative office and they were doing a 
amazing job of making sure that they were passing that information to chiefs so that chiefs um, and deputies could have that those resources and be able to bring that back. Um, we've also done everything we can to keep the, the website updated with all those resources. And that's why it was so important to make sure that the website was launched just right now in this environment because it was really needed. You sort of ticked off a, a bunch of different things that are all happening at the same time. But I, I wanted to take an opportunity just to kind of drill down with you about issues, uh, thinking about uh, issues of diversity, inclusion, equity as a wellness issue. For example, if they are uh, in the LGBTQ community to not be out and have to be closeted. Earlier in the program, you heard the voices of officers Tiffany Vega and Johnny Alexander. Officer Vega is Asian American and gay. Officer Alexander is African American and gay. Here is some more of what they had to say about their experiences. First, Officer Vega. I entered the system closeted in a pretty conservative part of our country. And I was born in South Korea and been adopted as an infant. And I was raised in, in uh, Boise, Idaho, actually, and which is a predominantly white community. And so, so I bring I bring some different things kind of to that equation. But when I entered the federal system, uh, I was closeted as a result of being raised in an environment and in a and in a social arena that didn't affirm the LGBTQ community. Not only did it not affirm it, but I was raised in an environment that spoke against it. And so as an adult, after struggling to find that identity for myself as uh, as a woman of color, um, you know, I just assumed I'd always be closeted. I wasn't closeted in my personal life. I was closeted in, in my professional life. And I had no idea. I, I truly, when, when I was offered the job and I was going through the hiring process and I started that first year, I didn't even, it didn't even dawn on me that I was doing something that would be working against my wellness or my well-being. It, it was not even an option for me to, to think about, let alone act on, to be doing anything else. And so, you know, it was an interesting experience because for those that knew me on a more personal level that also happened to be working in the district... Um, they they could see that that um, disconnect, I guess, and and so I had again one of my early mentors kind of come up alongside me and say, "Hey, Tiff, uh, what do you think about coming out?" <laughs> you know, and yeah. I was just like, "Oh, <laughs> I know." I was just like, "Oh my God, what do you know?" I don't. Like, that's not even, why would, why would I do that? And uh, so at that time, I was the only officer of color. And I was the only person that I knew of in the LGBTQ community that was in the district officer or not. And um, so I was just like, no, I would, that would be totally putting a target on my back. And that's not something I want. That's not why I took this job. Now, here's Officer Alexander. 
experience was unique for me. Um, I'm coming from D.C. at a federal government law enforcement agency where D.C. is a very diverse city. The agency that I worked for was very diverse and inclusive, not just um, the employees, but just they were actually openly gay LGBT employees there as well. So when I moved to Kentucky, it was a big difference because it's a conservative state versus D.C., so I was kind of hesitant to, you know, be myself. And at a point, I mean, I was just tired of hiding. I just couldn't be closeted because it wasn't me. I wasn't <laughs> giving my 100% of my true character. So I didn't have any mental health issues or like that because um, I always had a support system, but my support system was mainly in D.C., so I would just call them anytime I had any wellness issues as far as, you know, how to connect with folks, you know, to alienating myself as far as being a loner or just not feeling a part of the team. Just, I wouldn't say feeling weird, but just just feel inclusive. Um, so I came up to my chief and I said, hey, um, I think this is a great idea if we develop a diversity and inclusion committee. I think this would be a great way of not just officers learning about the diversity and inclusion amongst the different population and supervision of offenders and defendants. I thought it would be a great opportunity for the officers to learn about the different diversity and diversity and inclusion issues regarding involved individuals, but also just employees who may be members of different diversity and cultures. And so case in point, myself, so you know, during Pride Month, I plan a LGBT option learn session in June of 2019, and it was titled LGBT Challenges in the Criminal Justice Population. And so not only I spoke about some of the challenges from just supervising folks, but also spoke on some of the challenges based on what I face as working as a member of the LGBT community and working with not just employees, but also the system overall. It was well-received. And from that point on, I think that gave me confidence and just wanted to be authentic and just, just totally come out to the district based on that presentation alone. I think being in that present, just being in that room presenting, I think people was, was open. They were receptive to learning about the, the challenges amongst the population. And it was, it got some really good feedback. I did get some support from officers who actually came out to me that I did not know. You know, one officer came up to me and said that, you know, she's bisexual. And then another officer came to me and said that, you know, she's a lesbian. And so from that presentation alone, I ended up connecting with other officers that became supportive to me. I didn't have any officers in Kentucky, in Louisville exactly, that um, I could be able to connect to because mainly my support system was in D.C., I'm also an African-American male. So when you're African-American male, for me, and I'm only speaking for me, I'm not speaking on the entire general population of officers who are LGBTQ, but for me, just being African-American male and just being a member of the LGBTQ community, those are two separate wellness issues that can also can be, um, be challenging. When I first came to the district, it wasn't that many minorities there. Uh, I first came, it was... Deputy Chief was African-American, but I was the only African-American male there in our office. And then they hired another African male the following year. I was able to connect with an African-American officer who was a woman. 
I'm sorry, is, is a woman. She was real supportive of me. But, you know, it was times when she wasn't at work. I was the only person of color in the office. And so, uh, I mean, I felt, you know, a disconnect there. Because it was kind of hard to be myself. Um, I, I didn't say that. I, w- I wouldn't say that I was walking on eggshells, but it was kind of hard to make that connection. Melinda, how is the Wellness Committee addressing these types of issues across the diversity, inclusion, and equity spectrum? If people can't be their authentic self at work and bring who they are to work in a safe and accepting environment, it's absolutely going to affect their wellness. And we know this. The research shows us this. Um, As a committee, uh, we are always trying, again, to touch on all, all the aspects of wellness. But after the death of George Floyd, committee members reached out and started having those conversations um, and being real and being honest. And and it was through those conversations that we talked about what can we do and what can we do to support others in the system who may be feeling this way or any certain type of way and how can how can we be part of the change. So we definitely um, made sure that we could find all the appropriate resources that we could find and make sure that we were sharing those with different leadership teams and offering our opinions. And we had conversations with the administrative office about how we we felt and what we felt needed to be done. And we were heard, we were definitely heard. And um, the administrative office is, is working on all those things right now. And there's been various panels and conversations I've sat on where this comes out, um, this topic comes up. And I think it's very important that it's addressed and talked about and Again, people are able to listen and hear if that's what they want to do, but also for those who want to speak um, and be heard for them to be able to do that as well. And this is the, the great thing about our system is that, you know, we're able to take these things and, and, and bridge them with other areas. So and speaking in my district, I'm very fortunate to have um, a really um, really progressive diversity and inclusion committee where we are tackling on the subjects that that haven't been talked about before but should have and we are making sure that people are feeling respected and included and that they can be themselves at work and for those who want to listen that's great and for those who want to talk we want to hear what you have to say and, and what can we do to make things better what do you think the committee would like officer wellness to look like in five years from now or or, or even more I don't even know if I can go five years. I think we have such a long list for this year because we want to hit things at rapid speed. That's what I love about this committee, that it's like, no, let's do it, and let's do it all right now. And the talent on this committee can get it done, which is really important. But some of our goals for uh, 2021 um, are to to fill a part-time temporary duty um, position for wellness so that we have someone who can dedicate time more time than than we're able to right now to get some of our projects done. We are looking into, we're researching and, and thinking about developing a wellness app um, so that we can empower staff to, to take control of their own wellness. We are always wanting to, whether this is one year or it's going to be something every year for the next billion years, we're always wanting to increase suicide awareness among staff. Um, we're seeing what we can do to provide more resources with that uh, we were supposed to host our second annual conference, which got canceled or postponed because of COVID. So we're working on that and we are working on doing a, a winter wellness workshop virtually because 
we hope to not be in this environment still this winter, but you know we're, we're facing the reality that that just might be the case. Uh, we want to continue to support the inclusion of language in the judiciary strategic plan um, that underscores the judiciary's commitment to health and wellness of staff. We want to expand our resources. Uh, we want to provide training to local districts on, on the various wellness topics surrounding the eight dimensions of wellness. And uh, we are working on some more certifications for, for members of the committee so we can continue to evolve and provide the best services to districts in the nation. Before we go, you had mentioned uh, the work that the committee is doing on suicide prevention. And that's an issue in our system. We recently lost an officer. And so uh, to the degree you can describe some of the work that the committee, the more work the committee wants to do on er the area of suicide provision, I think that would be helpful for folks to, to hear. I think for the committee, it's really important to not be reactive, but to be proactive. When it comes to suicide prevention, you don't know who you affect. You don't know what you say that might have just changed that one person's mind. And so that's why it's so important, why we're so passionate about getting as many resources as possible and speaking to everyone that we possibly can and providing a place for people to feel valued and heard and know that, that we care and, and to, to help them not make that decision. So it's, it's a focal point. Um, it's why we were created. Um, and we, we know that we were created in response to one, but it's not how we move forward. We move forward proactively and we change the narrative. Do you see a correspondence there in terms of developing a culture of care within a district to care for the people, meaning the officers and staff within that district or that office, but then how that translates to how we work with people in the community? Absolutely. I think it's very important to the committee to take the taboo away from, from suicide. And there had been times where people would say someone suddenly died and we're saying they died of suicide. We're not using the term committed because sometimes, you know, the connotation that comes with it. So we, they died of suicide and, and saying it out loud and having those conversations and providing people with the resources and doing that and giving people a platform to know that they're valued and cared, you know, when they're having those hard situations, when they're pouring everything into their caseload, when they're stressed out because, you know, something happened on their caseload and it's to no fault of their own because they did everything, everything that they're, they're supposed to do and above and beyond, but we can't control human behavior. So it just happens sometimes. So by districts, letting people know that, that we acknowledge the work that they do and we're providing resources so they continue to do the work that we do. And that's a win. And I'll say it again, you know, you throw as much as you can at someone is if you can get something to stick to one person, then you've done your job because you've helped that one person and it may be that one person that needed the help the most. When you're taking care of yourself, you're taking care of your clients, right? You're taking care of the community. And it's just, again, very gratifying and uh, exciting to hear about the work of the committee, the work that you're doing, that there are so many districts that are on board, that the administrative office also is on board. And um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a difficult moment for everybody right now in our system and beyond, uh, and certainly for the clients that officers serve. Yeah. And Mark, if I could just add that, you know, yes, this job can be stressful, but boy, is it rewarding. And the work we do, it's so meaningful. And we change lives for the better. We help people 
not just get through the process with our offices, but through the, the system in general to not come back, to have long-term positive changes in their life. And when you do that, and when you see that with the client, someone you supervise, it is so meaningful. And I see it when people retire from this office, they're proud and they're so grateful for the work that they did. And so, you know, it, it's, it's important to note that this job is, is got so many positives and it is so important and so impactful. And we as staff members, as officers, whatever your position is in the agency, you know, wellness is, is your responsibility and you have to take ownership of it and, and take advantage of the resources that are out there because what's the point if they're there and you're not utilizing them, you're not, you're not doing yourself a service. Well, Melinda Torres-Felix, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for letting me be here today. Off Paper is produced by Shelley Easter. The program is directed by Craig Bowden and edited by Chris Murray. Our program coordinator is Anna Glachkova. Oh, and here's a reminder. If you're a U.S. probation or pretrial services officer, take a few minutes to check out the wellness resources available on the probation and pretrial services section of the JNET. And don't forget to listen to Managing Our Health and Wellness During COVID-19 and Beyond. You can find the program on the FJC.DCN COVID-19 Educational Resources page. I think you'll like it. If you subscribe to Off Paper, it'll also appear as a bonus episode wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mark Sherman. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This podcast was produced at U.S. taxpayer expense.